This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Bambergus. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to this three-hour, three-segment interview. Tonight's special guest is mathematician, social scientist, and leading scholar on the phenomenon of non-local consciousness, better known to all of us as remote viewing. We'll discuss important research of targets remote viewed on planet Earth and other planets, our past, present, and what awaits us in 2013. Dr. Courtney Brown will be with us shortly. And it's better to have it than not need it, than need it, and not have it. MMS. You can get it at our very test store. And you can also purchase our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with Seasons 1, 2, or 3, and bonus material. Visit the very test store for more information. And to get in touch with me, click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Remote viewers at the Farside Institute are currently engaged in a fascinating study using remote viewing to study climate and planetary change between the years 2008 and 2013. The initial results appear dramatic on a global scale, and the research does indeed suggest that major global change is a possibility between now and 2013. This is research 
not certitude. Remember what Albert Einstein once said, if we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be cult research, would it? The experiment has no connection with the Mayan calendar hysteria related to 21 December 2012. This is an experiment that ends on 1 June 2013, and the data will be fully evaluated only after that date. This experiment is potentially one of the most significant experiments ever attempted using remote viewing as a data collection platform. The project describes change between the year 2008 and 2013 across nine geographical locations with a global spread. In general, these remote viewing data suggest the following types of physical changes across many geographical locations by mid-2013. Impacts from what appear to be large meteors leading to tsunamis and possible volcanism, extensive and forceful flooding of coastal areas, excessive solar radiation, storms and other several weather. In terms of the effects of these changes on humans, the data also suggest massive self-organized relocation from coastal areas, refugees, the breakdown of rescue or other notable government functioning, the breakdown of the food supply system, the breakdown of the vehicular transport system, extensive loss of buildings near coasts. Oddly, these results largely parallel recent warnings being issued by NASA relating to the dangers of severe solar storms anticipated around the years 2012 and 2013 that would threaten the global long-term use of electricity. NASA is not currently explaining exactly why these unprecedented and severe storms are anticipated, but the warnings themselves could not be more clear. Meteor impacts are not included in the current set of NASA warnings. Since it seems likely that major governments would be aware in advance of most near-term global threats, then it also seems likely that they would take some actions that would reflect their anticipation of those events. These actions would likely not be explained to the masses to avoid panic. Here's a list of largely anomalous governmental actions that may indicate an awareness of a near-term global threat that is suggested by these remote viewing data. These are not speculations none of which prove anything, but considered collectively, they are exceptionally odd. The U.S. Space Shuttle has launched its last mission in mid-2011. NASA has entirely abandoned its government-funded manned spaceflight program, given the investment that the U.S. has made in launching humans into space since the 1960s. This is odd, especially since private efforts to launch humans into space are years away and currently unproven. It is as if the government does not anticipate being able to launch humans into space in the near future for reasons not currently stated. The Svalbard Global Seed Vault is being sealed in 2011. This will allow the world to restart agriculture given a global catastrophe. The United Nations formally inspected the facility, which might seem odd for a Norwegian project. The timing of this project seems like a strange coincidence. United States and global debt it is as if various governments are not expecting to have to pay back their debts, perhaps anticipating a global economic reset due to reasons not currently stated. The devaluing of the U.S. dollar seems to be a trend that will stay. Moody's, Standard & Poor's, and Fitch have announced that they may be devaluing the rating of the U.S. Treasury bond. Digging is everywhere. The U.S. has no nuclear enemies. Yet, it is digging huge underground facilities in inhospitable regions difficult for the masses to reach. Why? 
On the other hand, the Chinese tend to think collectively, and China is digging extraordinary subway complexes under most of its major cities in a crash program that seems odd in terms of timing and scope. Russia announced in 2011 that it is adding 5,000 new nuclear bomb shelters in Moscow, enabling it to protect all of Moscow's residents. The program is to be rushed so that it is finished in 2012. Why? Russia has no nuclear enemies. Russia's new subway system have also been replaced deeper than needed so that they can be used as deep emergency shelters. Again, why? Why all these preparations? And why the rush? NASA is now predicting that the sun may generate unprecedented solar storms for a lengthy period of between 2012 and 2013. We cannot accurately predict Earth's normal weather a week in advance, and it is by no means clear how NASA can do this with respect to unprecedented weather on the sun years in advance. They are saying that we are more dependent on vulnerable computer technology now, but we had similar dependencies in 2001 and 1990 when previous 11-year solar cycles hit. What is different about the current cycle? Some might suggest that NASA is acting as if it has some extra information that is not currently stated. And to discuss this and much more in a special three-hour edition, Dr. Corny Brown is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. This is Angela Thompson-Smith, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Dr. Courtney Brown is a mathematician, a social scientist who teaches in the Department of Political Science at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Independent of his work at the university, he's also the leading scholar on the subject of remote viewing as it is done using procedures that were developed by the United States military and used for espionage purposes or procedures that are derivative of those methodologies. Dr. Brown is the director and founder of the Farsight Institute, a nonprofit research and educational organization dedicated to the study of a phenomenon of non-local consciousness known as remote viewing. His recently published book on this subject, Remote Viewing, the Science and Theory of Non-Physical Perception, is the only book of its kind where the science of remote viewing is developed with respect to highly structured data collection methodologies. In this book, he analyzes data and develops a new theory that explains the remote viewing phenomenon as a consequence of superposition formation on the quantum level. And to learn more about Dr. Corny Brown, visit his websites at cornybrown.com and farsight.org. And directly from Atlanta, Georgia, what a privilege it is for me to finally welcome Dr. Courtney Brown to Veritas. Hello, Dr. Brown, and welcome. How are you? 
Well, you can call me Courtney, and it is great to be on your show, and I want to thank you. It's an honor to be here. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. You know, we've done, I believe it was last year, we spoke with uh, Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith. I don't know if you know who she is. but Oh, yeah. we I interact with her at the IRVA conferences, which is the International Remote Viewing Association conferences. And she actually just did a rather celebrated um, use of remote viewing uh, with a crime scene that was extremely successful. It was uh, really a marked mark in history but anyway go ahead oh that's interesting uh, we discussed a lot of of the uh, the the targets she remote viewed and this is probably a new one so i'm glad that we're revisiting the topic of remote viewing because i'm fascinated uh, my audience is fascinated too but for those in the audience that may not know who you are please tell us a little bit more about yourself beyond what i read sure well i i guess i should put the the punchline and to the part where I am the lead academic anywhere studying the subject of remote viewing as it is done using the structured data collection procedures that were developed by the United States military and used for espionage purposes or procedures that are derivative of that, of those methodologies. And the reason that is true unambiguously and absolutely is I am the only academic on the planet Earth that studies the subject of remote viewing as it's using those methodologies. Now, the interesting thing about it, I do that to largely tease my academic colleagues who basically out of fear of the implications that it would have on their career mobility, who are afraid, essentially, to discuss the subject of remote viewing. And 15-plus years ago, when I started publishing in the area of remote viewing, everybody was laughing at me. They were all saying I was deluded, this is an embarrassment, and so on. Mel, nobody is laughing anymore. Nobody is laughing anymore. It's like that movie, Waiting to Exhale, that starred uh, Whitney Houston and some others, uh, where everybody is just holding their breath and saying, oh my gosh, this could be real. So the, yes, the essential idea is never bet against somebody who is both smart and never backs down. And that's what it is right now. I've been a keynote speaker, for example, at a group of Nobel's physicists in Lucerne. I speak in university settings all over the world and in prestigious venues. And, you know, nobody's laughing anymore. People want to know what this is all about. And this is a particularly interesting time for me because I am at the university. Again, I do not do any of this studies of remote viewing at the university, but I am the leading academic and I'm also a mathematician, an applied mathematician working in a social science program. And it's because I'm a mathematician, I speak the same language as physicists. And the physicists and I can discuss these issues. And we differ because there's a lot of intellectual baggage that the physicists often carry with them into the conversations, especially tied to the perceived reality associated with classical mechanics, but also with the idea that relativistic physics is the absolute law of the universe. And so the conversations are interesting, but the the language is the same, the language of mathematics, and so the discussions of where we have to go in order to understand why remote viewing can work are very, very interesting. And so I was, I was on the stage, for example, in Lucerne with 
uh, Hans-Peter Dorr, former head of the Max Planck Institute, and we were discussing and this this subject, and we were, and he, he looked at me on stage, and said, "So you're really talking about a generalization of quantum mechanics?" And I said, "That's exactly it, because unless you understand why the macro reality matches and maps up with." what we know about the small quantum reality, there's no way to make sense of how remote viewing could even work. So those who say it can't work because the laws of physics are X, Y, and Z, and they don't allow it, so go away, they're really frightened right now because the remote viewing has not gone away. So the only thing left is a revision of those laws of laws of physics. But at the Farsight Institute, and again, for those of your listeners who want to go to the website, we're the largest science shop anywhere on the planet that has full-blown studies of the remote viewing uh, remote viewing studies of unbelievably interesting topics and at the institute's website which is www.farsight like seeing far f a r s i g h t .org everything is there all of the data are there for all of our stuff we have mastered the realm of public demonstrations of remote viewing so that people the old days where people had a scientist go into his laboratory and come out and say I did this in my laboratory trust me those are gone we have to have ways to publicly verify the collection of data so that people know no one's cheating we've mastered that and with that we've gone into projects such as Mel you won't believe this but one of the most interesting projects we just got published in a leading mainstream scientific journal the Journal of Scientific Exploration, peer-reviewed. And it was a project that was originally designed to, and successfully designed to, test for the existence of multiple realities. Mel, let me ask you a question. What color shirt is your, are you wearing right now? Black. Well, there's another version of this interview that you're doing right now in, in which you're wearing a blue shirt or in which you're interviewing somebody else. The reality is there are multiple realities, and we did a test of this. This is an idea that had been around since 1957 when Hugh Everett, working under John Wheeler at Princeton, published his dissertation, and it was widely scoffed at. We often talk about it as the other world's interpretation of quantum mechanics, and it was widely scoffed at. Um, the early physicists, such as Niels Bohr, uh, Werner Heisenberg and so on, they were hugely opposed to the idea that there could be multiple versions of anything, especially big things like you and I, let alone small things like subatomic particles. And so he was laughed at and he, he got so upset by it that he left physics and went into the defense department where he started to work with nuclear weaponry. And he was one of the primary architects for the principle of MAD, which is Mutually Assured Destruction. This is Hugh Everett we're talking about. And Mutually Assured Destruction, we actually have to say thank you, Hugh Everett, <laughs> because he saved our butts. You see, back in those days, there were many people, politicians, some policymakers, but also many people in the military, generals, who were actively arguing in favor of a first strike. This was during the Cold War, the beginning of the Cold War, and they were arguing in favor of a first strike, a nuclear strike against Russia and China, in order to eliminate the enemies now before we have to deal with them later when they have more capability. And Hugh Everett was the one who said, 
this is not going to work, the collateral damage to us will be catastrophic. It'll be a wipeout for us as well as them. And so let's do a policy in which we build our weapons, point them at them. They build their weapons, point them at us. And nobody will shoot, and we will continue to exist. And that policy won out. So in a very real sense, we all have Hugh Everett to thank for simply being around at the right time, at the right place. And you can imagine how horrible it would have been if they actually did try a first strike. Um, you know, Russia and China are essentially our allies now. And what would history have ever, if there was much of a history after that, ever have thought of the United States if we actually... <laughs> you know, and try to, to, to wipe out our enemies with nuclear weapons back then. So that's what happened to Hugh Everett. And it wasn't until 1970 that he was invited to the University of Texas to the physics department where he was surrounded by young graduate students and some young professors as essentially a hero as he gave a two-hour seminar, at least two hours, it might have gone on longer, about the multiple worlds or multiple or other worlds theory that he had in 1959 and it was that moment that he realized that he was having an impact because he was essentially he was just worshipped at that at that seminar it took that long and it's not until now then he died not long after that and it's not until now in the 2000s that the other world's idea of multiple realities is actually penetrated mainstream physics so thoroughly that young graduate students everywhere are talking about it and young faculty members are talking about it. No one's talking about the excitement of the old interpretation. It's everyone's talking about this. And what we did is we used a remote viewing test, took a year with a large collection of the best remote viewers on the planet to test it, and we came out affirmative. We've also done a project on uh, an anomaly on Mars which is a really, really high resolution, clear NASA, JPL, Malin Space, Space Science Systems image, in which there's a spray, a horizontal spray, coming out of a pipe, a straight pipe, connected to a pipeline that goes into a dome. <clears throat> now this spray, which has a shadow under it, really caught our attention. It was originally discovered by Patrick Skipper of MarsAnomalyResearch.com. And we did a situation where we, I, I designed a study where I had these remote viewers go in under totally blind conditions. They never know anything about the target when they're doing remote viewing sessions. And they replicated everything in the pictures perfectly and also described what was in the domes. And so this is not a, a vague, foggy thing where people say there's bases on Mars. This is where we said, there it is, there's the coordinates, this is the picture, and that's what's going on. We also did a project on a planet that used to explode, that did explode. If you between, could, can you, can you summarize the, the findings of, of that target on Mars? Well, that's absolutely fascinating. There are lots, we could talk about that for the rest of the show, but just summarizing, there are lots of beings, and they work there, it's a hardship post, it's essentially a one-way trip when they went there. There was no guarantee that they'd ever be able to get back to, you know, to wherever they came from. The facility was not built by them. It was built by someone else. It's an extremely ancient facility. The people that are there now are, it's a hardship post. They're working with problems such as missing parts, spare parts. They've got a good deal of it working again. 
doing whatever it does. It used to have some component of mining extraction. A lot of that water or liquid that's spewing out of the pipe is a waste. We did get the chemical composition partially of that waste. And the beings are, it's sort of a mixture between civilian military. There are people walking around in white lab coats, as well as uh, people in seemingly military uniforms. Now, I cannot, <clears throat> I can say that they're humanoid. I cannot say that they're human in the sense of coming from Earth. Right. The remote viewing sessions did not say that they were extraterrestrial. Now, that's one thing you have to know about remote viewing. Unless it actually says something, you don't have any data on it. So, all I can say is they look like you and I, and they came from somewhere, and they're operating this base that was not built by them, but it's an extremely ancient facility. And they're doing it for some purpose that they consider to be extremely important. They have, we actually got things from that, from that study dealing with entertainment, they have actually scheduled entertainment breaks, just like any type of place you'd have to go. Think of going to the Antarctica, to a facility, and you have to stay there all winter. Well, that's what it's like. They have to deal with that. We got a lot of information about the types of people. They're producing enormous amounts of energy, huge flashes coming from the surface of some of the domes. Anyway, that, that was an interesting project. Uh, we can go into a, a lot of detail of it, but <clears throat> that's an interesting project. Are they underground? Do, do, do people live underground? Yes, every, all the people are underground. Yes, all the people are underground. Uh, the spray is, of course, on the surface. Sure. The pipeline's on the surface, but the, it's more like a compound more than a, a single structure. It's a bunch of things with tunnels and all sorts of things underneath the ground, and the domes house these uh, you know, very large machines. And I don't want to do the whole show on this, but it's just so fascinating. And I have it's a really fascinating topic, yeah, absolutely. I just want to know because, of course, the pictures we've we've seen from, from NASA and so on, yeah, yeah, show just a completely dead environment, and that's why probably they're underground. But what do they consume to, to what, 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 how do they nourish themselves? We actually got information, they, they actually ship in a lot of their food. A lot of the food is, is brought in with, uh, it's, it's held in a warehouse. They do grow stuff, but a lot of it is in cans, or not, not necessarily the cans that we would use, but containers in a warehouse type of situation. But they also do grow stuff. <clears throat> Interestingly, the growing part of it is not very advanced, meaning they seem to have been living off of uh, canned food for a long while. And the growing stuff is relatively primitive, which must mean it's relatively new in the scheme of things there. And where do, the, where do they originate? I think you said that you didn't know, but that's, if they have... That's the point. I wanted to... My personal opinion on this is that they're clearly extraterrestrial and not the most advanced extraterrestrials either. But I've talked to the people that I work with, and I should mention them, such as Glenn Wheaton and Lynn Buchanan. Now, Glenn Wheaton, he comes out of Special Forces Intelligence, and he runs the Hawaii Remote Viewers Guild. And he's uh, came out of a, uh, what you might call an, a movement within the military that was eventually known as the First Earth Battalion. And that was the focus of the movie Men Who Stare at Goats. Goats featuring Jeff Bridges and George Clooney. And 
I also work with, and he's trained a, a, a lot of remote viewers that we work with. These are people who have studied these remote viewing procedures and become really excellent at them for typically more than a decade. And then I work also with Lynn Buchanan, who is the lead instructor in CRV, or Controlled Remote Viewing. And he came out of the DIA, or the Defense Intelligence Agency, and that was an official program. <clears throat> and he's instructed, he's trained and professionalized a large number of people. And I work with these civilian second generation and sometimes third generation remote viewers in these projects to, to do this. And I've talked to Lynn and Glenn about this, and they both feel rather skittish about talking about extraterrestrial stuff, <clears throat> in part because they worry about the woo-woo factor associated with extraterrestrials. <clears throat> and if you talk about remote viewing and extraterrestrials at the same time, you risk people dismissing the remote viewing because of the difficulty in believing in the extraterrestrial issues. And they like to separate the two out and just talk about the remote viewing. So they really pointed out to me, and I have to say they were, they were correct, they were correct in pointing out to me, that the data do not say explicitly anything about the people that are there being extraterrestrial. So I cannot say they are extraterrestrial. The only thing I can say is that they're humanoid and then I'm going to add, Mel, that in my personal opinion, the people that are there are extraterrestrial. <laughs> but, but, but I have to ask you, I have to ask you, you are, you are an applied mathematician. And, yeah. and I can understand why some people think mixing the woo-woo world into science may take the credibility away. But as an applied mathematician, the law of probabilities, if you look up at the stars and you know there are billions of stars, maybe even trillions of planets out there, isn't the chance of extraterrestrial life more so than none? Well, it's actually uh, a done deal right now. Um, we're not, it's not in dispute anymore. Because it's taking a while for the mainstream to sort of get it. But, well, it started with Colonel Corso's book, Day After Roswell, that was never never refuted by the military. But now, just recently, Chase Brandon, who was the operative, one of the highest CIA operatives ever in existence, and the operative with regard to Hollywood for like 27 years. That means every script dealing with the intelligence services and extraterrestrial life UFOs, things like that, <clears throat> went through Chase Brandon. And he was not listed in the credits, but he basically helped rewrite the scripts and, and revise the scripts and make sure that the scripts reflected a positive view towards the intelligence services. That's why you don't get any really bad PR coming out of Washington dealing with CIA or other intelligence services. He went through Chase Brandon, and he was the person uh, involved in that for 27 years. And this is not in dispute at all by anyone. And a month ago or so, he came out uh, on late night radio, but also on the Huffington Post, and it's since been <clears throat> rebroadcasted and reprinted everywhere, where he point blank said, he uh, was. He saw absolutely unambiguous proof Roswell. that the Roswell crash actually did happen. Yeah. It was an alien spacecraft. Then, and then he he didn't say much more about that, but he said unambiguously it did happen. Now the CIA was then asked 
by media sources uh, if, if it was right, because this is sort of shocking coming from Chase Brandon of all people. I mean, the only person you can get higher than that would be like the vice president of the United States. And so um, the CIA has not rebutted it. <laughs> they have not gone back either. So the point is you can't have someone like Chase Brandon say that without authorization. So the, the issue is it's really over. The government is letting this stuff out. But I want to say, Mel, look how interesting this is. Chase Brandon follows and follows uh, Colonel Corso in publishing these things or, mention, or saying these things. And the Defense Department and the CIA has never rebutted it. And not a single academic, except for me, has taken it seriously, meaning the, the academy, the university professors worldwide, but you can focus just here in the United States if you want to, are still ignoring it. But do you see how delicate things are right now in their psychology? That's why no one's laughing anymore. The evidence is already out there. It's very clear. And so the, the end result is absolutely unambiguous. So Right now, the academics, nobody's laughing. I can be as confident as I want because I know the end of, I know how this story is going to end up. <laughs> right. The, you know, the people are going to be recognizing the reality of not only remote viewing, but extraterrestrial life. So I sort of look at this situation on Mars and say, I'm not going to shy away from it. <laughs> Those are most likely extraterrestrials. But I have to say, Glenn Wheaton and Lynn Buchanan are correct. There is nothing in these remote viewing data that say the word extraterrestrial. So I can't claim that. And then some people have said, well, how could it be anything except extraterrestrials? And it's been pointed out to me that there are zillions of late, light, late night launches that are done in Cape Canaveral, for example, by the Defense Department. And no, no announcement is ever given for any of these things. You just it's, remote viewed my brain right now because that's exactly what I was going to ask you next. And some people counter that by saying, no, these launches light up the whole of Florida. You can't do that in secret. Okay, so they light up the whole of Florida. The issue is that there's no press announcement. There's no story that happens after that. They're not, they don't bring the press and say something's going to happen. A launch happens. Every single major defense satellite that's sent up is sent up without any public announcement, and it never appears in any in any newspaper. Is there well, such a thing as a secret space program? Well, that's the other thing. Um, there are, since we know uh, with absolute definition now that the Roswell crash did in fact happen, they have at least one ship, and the reports are that they in fact have many. The crashing ET ships, given the number of ET ships that are around, is not that uncommon. And they have a bunch of them. And so the issue is, do they have another space program where they're using technology from reverse-engineered ships? Mm -hmm. And that actually is a very great possibility. There's a, a lot of sightings that happen, for example, around Area 51 in Nevada that would suggest that the flights do exist that are human controlled. They, of course, don't want to announce that in the public because that would cause a tremendous, actually would be a, a big shock to the system in terms of acknowledging the reality of extraterrestrial life. But it would also start a competitive race for having access to this, this technology. But 
My own guess is that answer is yes to all these questions, which is yes, there probably is an alternate space system. That may be, in fact, why they were so willing to close down completely the U.S. manned spaceflight program, not just because there may be Earth changes that are heading towards us and they might not be able to fly for a while, but also because they might have other means of, of flying and that when they do get ready to fly again, <clears throat> they may not be planning on using uh, propulsion systems. I don't know this, but it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Is it too far-fetched to ask you this? Uh, you, you, I don't mean to deviate, but we remember the Nazi regime and the fact that they had exotic technology. And a lot of these scientists and engineers were sent to rush to the former Soviet Union and some here through Project Paperclip. Do you think that these craft that we may see in the sky may be as a result of the research of these individuals who made it all the way to NASA? It may be a secret space program. I don't know. One of the things, it's a perfectly reasonable question, and it may be, in fact, exactly what happened, but I simply do not know. I do think that what has happened is that this space program is really off the books, and so that we don't have a situation where we can say that um, th that it was technology that came from German scientists or technology that came from anywhere else, that we simply don't know where this technology came from. I think the idea of reverse-engineered ET spacecraft would be independent of anything that came out of the Nazis, because we do have crashed ships. We know that now. With our, the Roswell crash did happen, and it's, in fact, everyone's using iPhones and iPads and all that stuff. All that technology that burst onto the scene one after the other, including night vision glasses, cameras that uh, work in the night in low light conditions. All that technology apparently came out of those those craft, each piece being slowly reverse engineered and fed into the private sector with awards of uh, patent awards being granted. That came that all came out of the day after Roswell book right. by uh, Colonel Corso. So I'm just assuming that it's almost impossible at this point to sort of isolate the influence of the German scientists because where do you draw the line between what the German scientists were bringing in with their rocketry technology and the stuff that came in from the ETs afterwards. But again, I mean, if you, if you look at the stuff from Chase Brandon and Colonel Corso and ignore everything else, even that just by itself leaves no doubt that this stuff is real. And the, re and the reality is we have much more than that. For example, the Phoenix Lights flew right over three states and were witnessed by everyone, tens of hundreds of thousands of people, including the governor of Arizona. And the military came out six months later with a pilot who said, oh, those are just some flares that we dropped over Phoenix. Well, those lights went over three states and some of them were the size of many city blocks and passed right over the head of, say, the governor of Arizona, blocking out the whole sky. Those aren't flares, but the media, mainstream media, simply reports whatever the government says out. Of course. And, you know, and, and people aren't willing to challenge that very much. But those days are apparently coming to an end, and that's what the authorities are really afraid of. And that's one of the things that the remote viewing phenomenon scares so many people, not just the authorities, but mainstream scientists, because the intellectual infrastructure of the past 
really has to be recon reconfigured totally when you start acknowledging the reality of the remote viewing phenomenon. The other projects, for example, that we work on, to give you an example of how far how far this has gone, we did a, a real knockdown drag out test of the theory that was developed with a huge amount of planetary data by Thomas Van Flandern, the late astronomer who was the head of his Department of Celestial Mechanics at the Naval Observatory, very mainstream and exceptionally well published in mainstream venues, that there was a planet between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter and it exploded. Now the idea here has been scoffed at by mainstream astronomers Oh, going back over 100 years, they just don't want to accept the idea that there could be a, a reason why a planet would explode. Only a star. Yeah, they would only say a star, but they've never seen anything explode. All they do is see a light in the sky, and they say that was a supernova. They've never had a space probe out there to say what really exploded. They just assume it was a star. <clears throat> but anyway, Thomas Van Flandern amassed a huge amount of data suggesting that there was a planet and it exploded, just like in Star Wars with the explosion of the planet. And we did a test to see if the traditional idea of how the asteroid built between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter came about and the alternate hypothesis, which is Thomas Van Flandern's idea that there was a planet that exploded, and the data were absolutely unambiguous. It, it was clearly a planet. It had nothing to do with the ideas that mainstream astronomers like to say, which is that in the primordial solar nebula, when the star and the sun and the, and the planets were forming, there was some junk left over, and that's where the asteroid belt came from. That is a pipe dream. There was a planet, and it exploded. The Ma Maldek? We can easily call it Maldek. But the issue is that there was a planet, and it was in that location, just like Boyd's Law should say it was, and it blew up for reasons that are currently unknown. However, I do have some other information that's not entirely, well, certainly not published by us yet, but that does suggest that it was not a natural event that occurred, but there was actually an event of war. But that's going to be a, an, a, another project that we will develop and fully blow out one day, I, so, I, I assume. In addition, we did a project that I now call the post-2012 Earth Changes. It was a project that was originally designed, I didn't believe in the Mayan calendar stuff in the old days at all. I thought it was just so stupid that Mayan priests could have thought of the end of the world or the end of anything. And so I, we did a project that was called the Climate Project. That was between June 1st, 2008 and June 1st, 2013. And it was just coincidental that 2012, December, was in the middle. But we were looking, I was looking for small climate change, maybe a, between, you know, in, in, in places around the world. And seeing if remote viewing could be sensitive enough to test it to see if it could be sensitive enough to see, you know, small changes in sea level, maybe a little more storms, a little less snow on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, stuff like that. And we did a test that had the most amazing scientific controls that you ever heard. If I ever get a chance to explain them to you, you got to be careful, and your audience has to too. Because after hearing about the scientific controls, you have to go to a chiropractor because it twists <laughs> your head around so much. <laughs> I mean, it's really fascinating to see the, the level of control and randomization that we used in that study. 
and unambiguous results came back. Nothing about small levels. We found huge earth changes. I mean, like huge earth changes with devastating coastal stuff. No, not the end of the world, not the end of civilization, but it was, it's really big. I mean, like knock your socks off big. And when you look at the controls that we put in and the quality of the viewers and the public, publicly verified nature of the data, and the track record of the viewers, and you look at all of the stuff that we have that we have in there, all publicly verified, you say, wow, this is amazing. And so if these changes do in fact happen, it's actually going to produce a crisis for mainstream science because then the whole song and dance about the denial of the existence of remote viewing is gonna to have to come to an end, whether mainstream science wants it or not. And what will then happen is another type of crisis because in other periods of time in which major changes have happened on the planet, such as the French Revolution in the late 1700s, what you had was the reign of terror. You had anarchy and that was really only, and they were chopping off everyone's heads. You know, all the aristocrats were going, any previous authority was in risk of losing their, his or her head. And the only thing that stopped that was Napoleon. Similarly, in Germany, when they had a period of chaos, you had Hitler. Mm -hmm. Other periods, you had Stalin. So what we risk in these periods of dramatic change is masses turning away from traditional authorities. Now, we sort of say, okay, well, we sort of might expect that with respect to governmental leaders. A lot of people around the world think that governmental leaders don't don't speak the truth anyway. And I'm not talking about any particular countries. This is all countries. This is how a lot of people think about governmental leaders. Politicians. We, pardon me? Politicians. Politicians. But we also run the risk that the mainstream, that, the, that the, the masses may turn away from the scientific authorities as well. Because when you look at all of the preparations that have been done, by governments in, in, in seeming preparation for what's, what's coming, it'll be clear that a lot of scientists were involved in it. And the masses could very easily say, we're not going to believe any of you folks anymore. And that could enter an area of anarchy and also um, superstition, a loss of reason. And that would be something I'd not want at all because I am a scientist. And if there are going to be some big bumps in the road ahead, big ones, then I would want the aftermath to be guided by an age of scientific reason so that we can build a greater humanity and a greater earth than ever before. And that can't happen without the cooperation of mainstream science. But if mainstream science continues to ignore or deny the reality of remote viewing and all of the implications that that happens, then, you know, it's not going to be easy to tell the masses, okay, they screwed up once, believe them now. It's so it's in the interest of mainstream science to sort of come to grips with this earlier rather than later. Let me ask you, why is it? And you make it very clear that you do not engage in any research while you're at the at the university. Yeah. Why is it that that academics run away from this modality when? People like you, people like Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith and many of the others that you, you, you refer to, are all people who are respected in the community. Why is it that academia shies away from this? I'll give my own personal experience, but I'll, I'll, let me start by answering the question with respect to the late John Mack. Yes. 
was a psychiatrist, founder of his department of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. <clears throat> and when he started to publish about, not remote viewing, but about abductions, life, he went through an academic inquisition and they tried to get rid of his tenure. They forced him through proceedings that required him to hire lawyers and spend like $100,000 of legal fees to keep his job, his tenure. And that was only really ended when David Horowitz, the, um, oh, not David Horowitz, um, I'm sorry. Um, David Jacobs. No, no, the lawyer, the Dershowitz. Oh, Alan Dershowitz. Sorry about David Jacobs. But, but no, the, um, Dave, yeah, Alan Dershowitz, when he wrote a letter to, in the newspaper uh, in Cambridge saying that this is really violating not only the rules of tenure, but also constitutional rights and intellectual freedom, XYZ. It was after that, a week later, that the dean closed the book on John Mack's case. And John Mack told me later, actually sort of while this was all going on, he said he couldn't understand why his other colleagues at Harvard were not also interested in this. It was such a fascinating subject and the data were so interesting. Why wouldn't they be interested? So when I look at my colleagues, and I'm not talking about the colleagues just at my university, but at other universities as well, it's almost palpable the unsettled uh, the, the unsettled feelings that you get when you talk about these subjects, the, and this unsettled feelings you can only describe as fear. They're really very deeply upset, very deeply concerned, but they're not laughing anymore. But they're very deeply worried. And if you think about it, just on the level of physics, for example, it means that we're transferring information across time and space, meaning people are going into a room, sitting down at a table with a stack of paper and pen, going through these procedures under totally squeaky clean, blind conditions, and coming out with detailed data, 10, 15, 20 pages of detailed descriptions of something that's, that is supposed to be the focus of their perception that they don't know consciously, but some other analyst somewhere has, which we call the target. And if it's the sinking of the Titanic or something in the future or something in the past, they come out with detailed descriptions of it that are absolutely unambiguous. So you're transferring information across time and space in complete violation of the laws of physics, both relativistic and classical. And the physicists are realizing that if that is accepted, then the entire intellectual scaffolding that's, that they have about physics, including the existence of mass and even the physical dimensions, the existence of three physical dimensions, have to be revised. Everything has to be changed. And it's terrifying to them. Now, remember, physicists do not dispute the fact that information is energy. Information is something real. It's not just stuff that you know. Ever since the work of Rolf Landauer, they've theorized that information and energy are essentially equivalent, but it's been replicated, it's been actually confirmed in laboratory experiments that when you take actual information in an isolated system and destroy it, heat is released, energy is released. So information that we just think of as stuff we know is actually much more than that. It's a form of energy. So when we have perceptions coming from the past or from another planet or whatever, you're transferring information across time and instantaneously across space, and you're transferring energy 
across time and space. Now, E equals mc squared. c squared is a constant, speed of light squared, so E equals m is what we're talking about. So if we're transferring information, and that's equivalent to energy, E equals mc squared says that's also equivalent to mass. We're essentially transferring mass across time and space. And that just doesn't fly with mainstream ideas. So that's a critical issue. Now, the other thing, Mel, and this is so crucial, it affects all the sciences. For example, I'm in the social sciences. Once you realize the full implications of the remote viewing re research that's been going on over the year, you realize that the social sciences have to be totally revised as well. Because it's not just that you're talking about the existence of extraterrestrial life and how they govern themselves, but you're also talking about multiple worlds, multiple realities, and other versions of us, and how those other versions of us govern themselves. You're talking about a version of the 20th century in which all of the major wars did not happen. And you're talking about another version of the 20th century in which all of the wars ended in well, actually, World War II ended in nuclear destruction. So you're talking about different versions of us. And when you look at the social sciences, they are talking about very niddly, picky stuff in general, even in the leading journals, very small-scale stuff compared to this type of stuff. When you're talking about the social sciences in the future, it's much more like Isaac Asimov's portrayal of psychohistory developed by Harry Seldon in the Foundation novels. That's the type of social sciences we're really looking towards in the future, where you look at entire em entire empires building and crashing, and you're looking at the evolution of them through time, you're seeing what's happening in the future, bringing that back into the past, and then trying to change things so the future turns out better than it was. That you, you get the idea. I mean, time and everything has to change, and so the foundation novels by Isaac Asimov were one of the greatest examples of science fiction that was actually social science fiction. And I'm a social scientist. So I can see a future in which, in which physicists and social scientists gather together, where social scientists like myself are doing experiments with remote viewing, other worlds, things like that. And the physicists are with bated breath in the audience listening also and taking that information and redesigning their quantum mechanical experiments and other experiments based on stuff we get like that. Let me ask you this question then. Do you think, I'm just looking at, for example, your work, the crucifixion or ruse, and if the military has accepted remote viewing as a real modality, do you think in the future we may be able to rewrite history? Or let me just rephrase that, because we know that history is, is written by the winners. Yeah. Would, would remote viewing will be able to put back the words as they were, as it relates to the real history? That's the idea. Actually, we're talking about a future in which we no longer govern ourselves through secrecy. Mm -hmm. We govern ourselves through secrecy. We have secrets. Whether, whether it be the Federal Reserve Board or congressional stuff or, or you know, presidential stuff, we, we basically have secrets and we hold information back from the public in order to control what they know. That was the job, for example, of Chase Brandon for 27 years with respect to every single major motion picture that came out for the last two plus, two plus decades. So that is what the governments do. They govern by secrecy. And now we're talking about a change in which our governance may be 
permanently more open. And that will take some adjusting as well. Now, you mentioned the crucifixion ruse. So you, there are two DVDs that we have out, that I have out right now. And the first is the Farsight Experiments. And that can be seen right on our website, farsight.org, right on the homepage. And that summarizes all of these major projects that we've been talking about and ties them together. And people that are overwhelmed with how much science we have really can start there and say, and, you know, after seeing that DVD, they can say, okay, I get it. I understand what you're doing. You're doing unbelievable stuff. And that's the best way to sort of hit the ground running. But there was another project that I did that was rejected by the board of directors. I am the, I am the director of the Farsight Institute, but we have a board of directors that includes Lynn Buchanan and Glenn Wheaton and uh, Bruce Kaufman, an academic leading economist at Georgia State University. And they voted unanimously, which includes me, after a long discussion, to not include the crucifixion ruse as a official project of the Farsight Institute because it was just too controversial. Meaning, the without seeing the data, I had seen the data, but no one else had seen the data, without looking at the data at all, they just said the subject of the crucifixion involving Jesus was just too hot to handle, and they didn't want all of that controversy associated with it to be associated with the Farsight Institute. So I published it independently in a, a different venue, uh, and it has its own website, crucifixionruse.com, and it has a detailed a description and investigation of the crucifixion drama involving Jesus. And the remote viewer was Daz Smith, who was got a huge track record in scientific experiments done at the Farsight Institute. And that the data, a, a large number of sessions triangulating all different aspects using uh, using Daz Smith, who's also an expert in the use of remote viewing, working with crime situations. He's from Britain and he works with police departments a lot with missing person and also crime investigations. We, we really did button down exactly what did happen during the crucifixion period. And it doesn't match at all what happens or what's described in the Bible. And the the type of revelations that we're talking about were, in fact, I can say this because I, I think it's absolutely unambiguous. And I do think because we can remove you, technology will be available in the not too distant future, probably within 100 years, where all of the stuff that we now use remote viewing for will be doable with technological stuff, so you'll be able to see on monitors what's what people are actually remote viewing and so on. So I'm, I'm certain in my own mind this will be corroborated and confirmed in the future that the crucifixion as we know it did not happen. There was a crucifixion, but there was a ruse in which Jesus participated in the ruse, uh, orchestrated it, and Judas was a major participant. The idea that Judas was to lead the authorities to someone else, and that someone else was a follower of the throngs that were gathered around, and he was a mentally ill, somewhat thoroughly deluded individual who thought he was the Messiah. And they went to him and said, you know, you're right, you're the one, you are the one. And would you like to go through this sacrifice? You know, biblical prophecy, fulfilling all that stuff. And the guy agreed, sort of an adventure gone astray. 
And they drugged him so he wouldn't feel too much pain. But that's why he couldn't answer back when people asked him questions. That's also why he couldn't carry the cross. And that's also why Peter, who was not in on the conspiracy, the idea was to keep it to as few people as possible, just like two or three. Um, Peter was not in on the conspiracy, and he really did not know that guy. That's why he denied three times. I know three times. And that's also why they had to get rid of the body the next day really quickly, because that was the incriminating evidence for this thing to work. So uh, Judas was one of the bravest people in history because if he was discovered as leading the authorities to a stand-in, Judas would have been crucified as well. So we found out where Jesus was, and Jesus was an extremely advanced being. By the way, I'm not. this does not criticize Jesus at all. Once you see the full picture that's portrayed and developed in the DVD, The Crucifixion Ruse, then you really see that Jesus was a much bigger, cooler, more intelligent, greater guy than anything mainstream religion says. Mainstream religion essentially says that Jesus was a stoic God who died to cleanse our sins. Well, the basically is in the higher realms of existence, these dramatic battles between good and evil don't happen. And Jesus saw no reason for this type of painful sacrifice to actually happen. So, but he he did also realize apparently that the human race, it's our own evolution at the time, saw that there, you know, we demanded it. We we were we needed that sort of blood sacrifice because we had this self-esteem problem, and we were also a society that could be compared in a way to a child who believes in Santa Claus. Now, what do you do when a child believes in Santa Claus? Do you go up to the child and slap him around and say, wake up, kid, there is no Santa Claus. Yes, snap out of it, be mature. Or do you dress up like Santa Claus and and say, yep, Santa Claus is coming tonight. Now, you know that when the child gets older, she or he will not blame the parent for doing the Santa Claus thing. It was something that the kid wanted to go through and needed to go through at the time. Well, that's sort of what happened to us. We had a situation where we needed to have this blood sacrifice. We needed to feel that we were that we were in a polarized situation. We were a slave-based society. The Greeks had slaves. The Romans had slaves. If you crossed the planet, you would have found the Mayans and Aztecs had slaves. Everybody had slaves. And we had battles between good and evil. These people were good. Those people were bad. And we just had to go through this cleansing thing. And so Jesus let it happen. And most importantly, the remote viewing results are so clear that he basically said this, that if this is going to happen and this mentally ill, deluded guy was going to go through this, he wasn't going to have it be a waste. So he made sure that it was perfect. He was orchestrating things telepathically, like long distance uh, he was alone by himself in the desert regions. We have a clear idea of where it was. It's all described in the in the DVD, Crucifixion Ruse. And he was extremely active in coordinating zillions of people, both ones you see and don't see, but at a long distance. He was by himself. And Judas kept the secret to his end. By the way, the, the Bible says various conflicting things about how Judas died. That happened to be one of the targets because I was so wondering about that. And Bible says either he, at one point it says he fell down in a field and his bowels gushed out. And in another point it says he hanged himself. Hanged himself, right. So, you know, the Bible doesn't give any clear reason, but we do know now what happened. He was arrested by the military authorities, imprisoned in a very secure prison, 
and interrogated like like big time and he died at the hands of the military authorities in the prison that's what happened that tells you also that they probably did figure out that something might have been amiss because they went after him and that's that's how judas ended but once you and by the way the remote viewing results were very clear on this totally unambiguous he was a very spiritual person and he held a secret protecting a cherished individual to the very end let me understand this correctly so the person who died in the uh, on the cross was a sacrificial lamb if you will so that jesus christ could continue his work is that no jesus christ was jesus was finishing things up but the idea was to make himself into a martyr that's what the few disciples ah. and to avoid the unnecessary crucifixion stuff because that simply isn't necessary in the high realms it was something that humans sort of wanted to go through and we weren't going to let it go we had to have our day of bloodletting and so he said if it's going to happen let's make it work to the benefit and so it made him into a martyr and it actually had the essential message of jesus which was love is the thing that drives the universe the power that drives the universe and god is a happy god that message actually spread through thousands of years and it changed fundamentally human society if that had not happened a slave-based society that we had back then add 2000 years to it it would have been a complete collapse of the human experiment and the only thing you could have done to this world is nuke it start over again but what happened to jesus what happened to the real jesus well according to the remote viewing we did look at the ending moments the ending moments is very similar apparently to the ascension moment and he was surrounded by his disciples in a large building in a big room and the energy in the room was palpable everyone knew that they had just witnessed an extraordinary event that this was and they knew that it was going to change the entire planet everyone's hair was on the top of their head was raised it was just extraordinary to read these sessions and also to hear daz speak of them on the dvd you actually hear daz present the material it's hair raising and the energy was so enormous and jesus at the time up front was actually communicating telepathically but it was like with a cell phone but not with a cell phone not with technology but it was with that same type of sense communicating with distant places and distant beings seen and unseen and the disciples and the other people gathered around were watching this happen and they absolutely knew this was this was going to change the entire planet it was unbelievable and that's when jesus phased out now the whole idea of phasing out sort of disappearing may seem mysterious but it's really not um we see that happening technologically all the time with ufo's it's been widely widely recorded that you can get ufo's on radar and visually in one spot and see them moving around and then they just they blink out and disappear yeah and they show up you know somewhere else in the sky and the idea the theory of how that actually works is all based on a the, the generalization of quantum mechanics that actually is tied into how remote viewing works and once you start realizing that everything is energy frequency based and that there is no such thing as real solid matter physicists have never been able to find anything solid you look at your tables and your couches and your houses <clears throat> and you say they look solid but inside all that so-called mass there's nothing solid the only have particles subatomic particles and even those are just 
frequencies interacting together in something called a wave packet, they've never found anything like a solid billiard bowl, indivisible solid thing ever. And so when you start talking about everything being frequency-based, then you understand that anything that changes its essential frequency, what you might call uh, quantum signature or essential frequency average, will phase out and you simply won't see it anymore. It'll be out of sync with the rest of the frequencies that are building up everything we do see. And so if you think about someone like Jesus and you realize how frequencies can change the visibility of things technologically, then you're talking about an extremely advanced being who is able to focus his or her attention, in, in Jesus' case, in Jesus' case, his attention, on higher frequency realms. And if you focus on those higher frequency realms with sufficient coherency, <clears throat> your materialization would end up being in that. It actually matches what we know of in quantum mechanics, because in quantum mechanics, you have frequencies interacting to produce things called a wave packet. And inside that wave packet, there's a particle. But the particle doesn't actually appear, it doesn't manifest, it doesn't become real until it's registered or observed in some way. And so it's the act of focusing consciousness that makes a particle become <laughs> real before us and locate itself on, say, a photographic plate. Well, if you have an advanced being like that, like Jesus, you're talking about the ability of consciousness to realize or focus itself on a various realm, whether it's our realm that we see 3D stuff in or a higher realm. And where you focus that consciousness, you're going to end up being. And where you don't focus that consciousness, you're not going to be there. And that's what the UFOs do all the time. Now, you and I can't do that. But if you assume that there was a sufficiently advanced being, it's theoretically possible. So if you want to actually see the science of this type of thing, we can't go into it in the, this interview here, but I was at the University of Colorado at Boulder this summer, and I gave a talk at the Society for Scientific Exploration <clears throat> at, the, at, at Boulder, Colorado. And it was recorded, <clears throat> and it dealt literally with this subject of how remote viewing is possible based on the idea of this frequency stuff. And I tried to make it understandable with respect to average people, to tie it all together, but to include enough science so it was unambiguous. And the recording of that presentation can be found on our homepage, www.farsite.org, O-R-G. And that recording... Um, is a really good place to start uh, in terms of understanding how this stuff actually could possibly be. And by the way, I don't mean to interrupt you, but we have to take our one and only intermission. So I'm glad that you gave your website. Once again, is that the only website where people can, can become familiar with your work? Well, that's the best one, farsight.org. And from there, you can see the big picture of the DVD, the Farsight Experiments, which is the best place to start understanding you know, what we do. And then if people want to know about the crucifixion stuff, that's a separate project entirely that's not coming out from the Farsight Institute, but I really like it. And that's a separate website. That's crucifixion, www.crucifixionruse.com. And when we come back, folks, we have so much more to discuss. We have a lot of questions from members of the audience around the world. Great questions regarding some of the most important targets that Dr. Courtney Brown has, has remote viewed. Also, I want to ask him, when we come back, 
he says that our brains are narrow band hologram generators. I want to know if this is by design or if there's a way that in the future this may change. But all this when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is John Lear, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. <laughs> 